Well, great to see you all. Please take a seat. Warm welcome to Christ the King uh, again today. Grateful for this time together. Grateful to be here with you. Look at your neighbor and say, it's great to be here to be here with you. We continue today in the sermon series on the book of Ruth, and we're calling this sermon series Boundless Love. We're calling it that because that, that word boundless love corresponds to a term that appears throughout the book of Ruth, and that term captures one of the central purposes of the book of Ruth. And that term, we talked about this if you were with us last week, is chesed, chesed, if you want to say it like a local speaker. Say that with me, chesed. Chesed, we translate that as loving kindness, we translate that as loyal love, we can translate that as boundless love. Hesed is a defining trait of our Father in heaven, and our Father in heaven wants it to be a defining trait of His people, the church, us. That's what He wants us to be like. That's why we have the book of Ruth. One of the great gifts of the book of Ruth is that it unveils for us the DNA of Hesed. Along, these last, along those lines, last week we saw that uh, Hesed love is a love that commits It makes promises and sacrificial commitments, and it keeps them, sometimes at great personal cost. In chapter 1, that is exactly what Ruth does when she makes that vow to Naomi. She says, your people will be my people, your God my God, where you die, I will die. That is Ruth deciding she's not going to veer off and pursue her own life, but committing instead to her mother-in-law. And that leads to immense blessing, as we will see in the coming weeks. Yet Hesed does not just commit. That's not all that it does. It also defends and offers protection. That's another aspect of its DNA, and that's what we're going to explore today. But before I say more, let me pray. Lord God, grace us in this place with your presence so that as I uh, unpack and expound this remarkable passage of Scripture, we would hear not just my words, but your word, and that it would land in each one of our lives as we have need. Challenge us, exhort us, encourage us, build us up, in faith and hope and love in the ways of Hesed, and let us leave here today with a little bit of awe and wonder. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody ever play tag? Tag, you're exactly. Of all the kids' games, and I think you'll agree with this, it is universally accepted that the game of tag is the best. It is hands down the best. At the same time, if you think about it, tag is a somewhat strange game. There you are with a group of friends, everyone's gathered together, and all of a sudden, one of them becomes it. And as soon as the person becomes it, their arms are translated into these menacing tentacles that are reaching out to try to touch other people. And what happens? Everyone runs away, screaming their heads off. My kids do this every day. They also love the game of tag. Now, throughout the history of the game of tag, the long and illustrious history, one of the most debated aspects of the game has been the concept of base, the concept of base. Almost every game of tag, certainly all the games of tag I played growing up, devolve into disagreements about base. One person says, you can only be on base for 10 seconds. Another person said, no, it's not 10 seconds. You can only go to base 10 times in a given game. And then there's always the person that says, it cannot guard the base. That's clearly against the rules. And then you got the guy who says, base is for rookies. I'm not doing base anymore. (laughs) All these different disagreements. But despite the quarrels, despite the disagreements, here's something that everybody agrees on. Base is important. Base is important because it is a place of safety. It is a refuge. Base is a place where you get defended from it when it comes around with its menacing hands trying to tag you. Now, why do I give you this little lesson on tag? Because we're actually going to play a game right now. Everyone stand up. Just kidding. (laughs) Matt was like, shoot. 
Why the tag lesson? Because in today's passage from Ruth, it is made very clear that another crucial aspect of the DNA of Hesed is that it defends and offers protection. Hesed defends and offers protection for the vulnerable. To practice Hesed, you might say, is to create places and spaces like bases. It is to create places and spaces like bases. Quick history lesson. During the Middle Ages, some of you will know this, churches, at least at their best, were places of sanctuary. Now, in that context, in the medieval years, sanctuary was not just the name for a room like the one we're sitting in right now. It was actually an attribute of the place or space where Christians got together to worship. And so churches, you might say, functioned as bases for people who found themselves under threat. For instance, in medieval England, let's say you were being chased by some uh, some pursuers, maybe they were the king's thugs coming to rough you up. If you ran into a chapel, if you ran up to the altar, past the rails, past the poles, you were safe there. The people chasing you could not extract you from the building. They could not touch you. They could not harm you because there were sanctuary laws in place. So as long as you could stay there, you were safe. Now, at its best, the church has been a sanctuary space for the vulnerable throughout history. According to the Bible, Christians are to be people who defend and protect the vulnerable. We are to be a safe haven as a community for people under threat. That is part of practicing said, And that blazes forth from today's readings from Ruth chapter 2. And in coming to terms with that little passage which Mary read for us earlier, it's printed in your bulletin. Keep it at hand, please. In coming to terms with it, there are two things I want to discuss. Number one, there is the need to defend. You bet there is. There is a need to defend. Someone was cheering. That's right. Second, there is the call to defend, the call to defend. We all have this call. Everybody in this room, all followers of Jesus, have a call to defend the vulnerable. So let's start first with the need to defend. Here's something that's clear from today's text, not to mention the whole Bible. There are people on this earth who are under great threat of harm. The world is a dangerous place. It is dangerous right now, literally, for many billions of people. Now, alas, that is not the way that the world was supposed to be. In the beginning, God created the world as a place of peace and flourishing, a place where justice and truth prevailed and reigned. The world that God first created, as it was created, is a world where no child, no woman, no man would ever be at risk, would ever be at danger of harm from another human being. But we all know that is not the world we live in anymore. Because of sin, because of my sin, because of your sin, because of sin in the world, the goodness of creation was shattered. And as a result, many people on the planet today have less power and fewer advantages than any human ought to have. Many people live under the threat and strain, levels of threat and strain that no human should live under. But that is a fact. Here's another fact. The Old Testament has a lot to say about this state of affairs. It speaks of four people who are especially vulnerable types, the so-called quartet of the vulnerable. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 22. The quartet includes immigrants and aliens. People who lacked citizenship, they didn't have any land, and so there was no meaningful access to the justice system for them. And then the next member of the quartet was widows. They lacked a husband, which meant, especially in the ancient Near East, that they lacked protection and recourse to justice. Third member of the quartet was orphans. They didn't have a family. They didn't have family structures or parents, so they could very easily be exploited or forced into slavery, and that happened all the time. And then the fourth and final member of the quartet is the poor. They lacked social power, they lacked the sorts of connections that people need to move up in life, and they would had no access to the justice system either. So that's the quartet of the vulnerable, and guess what? Did you notice? Ruth represents all four 
of those categories of people. They all come together in the person of Ruth. She is an alien and a refugee. She's a foreigner. She's living in a land not her own, and therefore she's vulnerable to racial prejudice and discrimination. You bet she is. She's a widow. She has no husband. She's an unaccompanied woman. That's a very risky position to be in in her time and place. She has become an orphan. Did you notice what Boaz said in verse 11? Boaz says, you left your parents. You left your family, your tribe. There is no clan surrounding Ruth to protect her. Not a good position to be in. And, of course, Ruth is poor. She's a gleaner, which means that she goes around and picks up the barley on the ground after the combine has come by to do the harvest. Let me put it like this. If you drew a social hierarchy ladder, Ruth would be at the bottom. In fact, she's below servants, male and female servants. She is at the very bottom. So here's Ruth at the bottom of the social ladder and, therefore, at the height of vulnerability, the person at greatest risk. And in this position of enormous risk, all of a sudden, she finds herself in the community of Israel. That's the people of God in the Old Testament. That's where she finds herself. And the question the story wants us to ask is this, what will God's people do? What will God's people do when the most vulnerable person shows up? That's what that's, that's the question this text is pressing on us. In fact, it's a question the entire Bible is constantly pressing on us. Just read it. The whole Bible is always asking this question. What are God's people going to do when the most vulnerable in their midst show up and need help? What are we going to do? Or if I might put it another way, slightly more contemporary terms, how are we going to know if we are successful as a church? Every week I get letters or emails, Angela gets them, they come to the office, uh, invitations for seminars and conferences and workshops. If you take part in this seminar, the results will be amazing, your church will be the definition of success. That's what they all say. But here's something I've noticed about all those little invites I tend to get. They have a common theme. They all tend to define success by the three B's. You know what the three B's are? Buildings, budgets, and bottoms. Do you have amazing big buildings? Do you have a huge budget? And how many bottoms are in your pews? That's how they find success. That's how America defines church success. You want to know how God defines church success? How well do you take care of the vulnerable in your midst? That's God's definition. Let me tell you about someone who hits the bullseye of God's definition. It's all saints say. So I'm going to tell you a story of a saint, uh, a great figure of faith from the church history. It's the story of St. Lawrence of Rome. He was a deacon in the city of Rome in the 3rd century A.D. And as a deacon, he was the leader of the city's cathedral. And at that time, the cathedral housed the church treasury. And so the, every week, the cathedral would dispense money and food and alms to the poor of the city of Rome. There was no social welfare net in Rome from the state. So it was done at the cathedral. Notwithstanding all this really good work for the poor that they did at the cathedral, in the year 258, the Roman emperor, who was a pagan man at this time, he ordered executive order that all Christian bishops and priests and deacons be summarily executed and that all the wealth of the church be confiscated and put into the treasury of the Roman Empire. And so the prefect of the city of Rome, kind of like the mayor of Georgetown, he walks over to the cathedral, knocks on the door, St. Lawrence, give me all your money. And Lawrence says, give me three days, let me get it all organized, get it calculated, organized, I'm going to come present it to you, just give me three days. And that is exactly what Lawrence did, except not in the expected way. He was a tenacious, sassy chap. As my grandmother would say, he had a bit of smartness in him. Over the next few days, Lawrence gathered up all the wealth, and what did he do? He 
swiftly distributed all the wealth to the poor of the city as fast as he could so that the Roman state would not seize it. They were not going to get that windfall. And then, as he promised, the third day arrived, he marched to the prefect's office, uh, and the prefect said, give us all the wealth, you know, hand it over. And what did Lawrence do? He presented the prefect with the crippled and the poor and the homeless and the indigent population of Rome. And he said, this master precept, this is the wealth of the church. This is the true wealth. And then he was burned alive. Our world is a shattered and dangerous place. There are literally billions of people on the planet who are under threat of harm. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the answer, and now we go to the second point, is that we defend and shield and offer refuge and defense for the vulnerable. We do what St. Lawrence did. We make the church in this time and place a base, a haven, a place of safety. And why do we do this? Not just because it's a nice thing to do, not just because we get a tax receipt, nothing wrong with that, but that's not our primary motivation. Not because we get listed in the gala bulletin after the fundraiser and we get some public recognition. That is not our primary motivation. We do this because it's what God does, because it is who God is. Let me put it this way. When God is introduced in Scripture, take Psalm 68, for example, He is introduced as the father to the fatherless, and He is introduced as the defender of the widows. So now imagine that God shows up at a cocktail party. There he is, Jesus at a cocktail party. That's for you, Rick. Everybody's introducing themselves, mingling, touting their credentials. And what does God say? He says, hello, nice to meet you. I'm the triune God. I am the defender of the defenseless. How are you doing today? Are you, are you oppressed or are you an oppressor? Nice to meet you. That's who God is. That is how he introduces himself. And that is why Jesus, when he makes his great debut in the Gospel of Luke, he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah and he reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the captives and liberty for the poor. That's what he says. And he rolls that scroll up, he puts it away, and he looks out and he says, Today that is fulfilled in me. And everybody's like, that's how God introduces himself. Nothing short of remarkable, especially when you put it in context. In the ancient world, everybody tended to assume that the power of the gods was channeled through the rich and elite of society, the, the people who have, the wealthy, the powerful, the influential. And so, therefore, to oppose people like that was to oppose God. But guess what? In Israel, it was not like that because God is not like that. The living God identifies not with the rich and the elite so much as with the poor and the powerless, the meek and the weak. Blessed are they. That's how Jesus puts it. Which is why to come against the poor and the powerless of this world is to come against God. Just listen to these words from Exodus 22. This is the Lord speaking, and we'll just read you what he says. He says, you shall not wrong the immigrant or oppress her. You shall not mistreat any widow or any fatherless child, because if they cry out to me, surely I will hear them and my wrath will burn, and your wives, your wives will become as widows, and your children will become fatherless as orphans. Wow, that's kind of intense. Not the kind of thing you have written in calligraphy and hang on the bathroom wall, is it? No, ma'am, it's not. You come against the vulnerable, you come against me. And so we see the heart of God, a God of justice who stands on behalf of the oppressed, the exploited. And that is, by the way, exactly what's happening in the story of Ruth that we're looking at today. We witness God leading Ruth to the fields of Boaz. Just so happened she ended up there. No. 
God is at work behind the scenes in these seemingly random events. He's giving Ruth favor with the field managers. He is protecting Ruth. He is providing this little bird with refuge under his wings. That's how verse 12 puts it. What a stunning image. And in doing all of this, God acts in part through a man called Boaz. And parents or grandparents, if you're looking for a really good name for a son, that's one. Call him Boaz. Great name. Boaz shows up in his field, and he looks over, and he sees this little innocent, vulnerable gleaner. She's a widow. And I want you to notice that in the context of this story, Boaz is the utter contrast to Ruth. Here is a person of power and authority at the very top of the social ladder, a landowner, a guy with wealth and resources, somebody who's got all the cards in his hands. And as he comes onto the scene, and as he sees this foreign widow out there in his field, here's what everybody's thinking. What's the strong man going to do? That's what they're thinking. It could go either way. He could be generous and kind, or he could mistreat Ruth and there'd be no repercussion. It could go either way. What's he going to do? I'll tell you what he does. He defends and offers protection. He listens to Ruth's story. He learns that she's a foreign widow caring for her mother-in-law, just scraping by. He discerns the perilous position that she is in. And in response, does he simply say, oh, that's okay. You can just stay here and collect the scraps in my fields. No, no. He does so much more. He says, actually, stay put. Don't go to any other fields because he knows that Ruth would be exploited, very easily exploited in other fields. And then he tells Ruth, I want you to know as well that I have charged all of my male workers, verse 9, not to reproach you. That's the Bible being diplomatic. The word that's used there actually means molest. I've instructed my servants not to molest you because that is what would have likely happened to a foreign widow in a situation like this. You mess with Ruth, you mess with me. You got a problem with Ruth, you got a problem with me. That's what Boaz is saying. And boy, is Ruth grateful. You bet she is. And I'm sure the women in this room can relate. She falls on her knees and says, thank you, thank you. What Boaz has done is to create a base, a safe place for Ruth. Now, why does he do that? Not because he wants to marry her. They do eventually have a romance and they get married, but that happens later. We're not there yet. He's only met her for the first time today. He's not smitten. He's doing this, verse 12, because this is a man who knows and loves God. And so he's doing everything he can to show the heart of God in his decisions and his actions. And you know what? That's exactly how it should be with us. That's how it should be with us. God often uses us, the church, to defend the vulnerable, to extend mercy and justice. You can be God's hands. Yes, you. We can all be agents of his kindness. That is our call. Just like those little boys looking after their sister right there. Now, at this point, I want to remind you of something that I did not mention last week when we started the series. And that is that the book of Ruth takes place in the time of the judges. Anybody know about the time of the judges? You ever read the book of Judges? Okay, we've got to work on biblical literacy. <laughs> next, next sermon series, Book of Judges. Um, okay, not a fun read. Best part of Judges is when it's over. <laughs> During the time of the Judges, terror and chaos and horrendous violence reigned in Israel. And that violence, no surprise, was often enacted against women. Judges is full of stories of men abusing their power, destroying people, especially women. Just go read Judges 19, but don't do that with your kids in the room. And all that violence was often overlooked and accepted and excused. 
And isn't it a good thing that we don't live in a world like that anymore? This is me being grimly facetious. In contrast to all that, there's Boaz, a different kind of man, a man who uses his strength not to abuse but to defend, who uses his strength not to abuse but to defend. And so at this juncture, I want to say something momentarily to all the men in the room, all the boys, all the guys in the room. Ladies, you can listen in, but I'm going to say something for the guys right now. I do this from time to time. Boaz, for us, is a model of masculinity marked by hesed. And what is that more specifically? We're talking about a masculinity that seeks to protect the vulnerable and that honors the dignity and worth of women. We all know that women continue to live in this world with an acute awareness that abuse or victimization or even harm stemming from plain stupidity, all of that remains a real possibility. Every single day, that remains a real possibility. Between a fifth and a third of women have endured some kind of traumatic experience, and the numbers are even higher when it comes to harassment and objectification. I was in a pastoral training group six years ago. There were five women in my cohort and then a group of us guys. Four out of those five women had experienced significant sexual and or physical violence. And at least until that group had never told anybody about it. Changed my perspective entirely. We'll never be the same after hearing those stories. One of them said, and every, all the others agree, they said, riding in an elevator with a man can be a profoundly unnerving experience for women even riding an elevator. Why? Because not all men are gentlemen. And so it comes to this. It remains the case, you bet it does, in this world that one of the greatest threats to women is men, especially but not only men in power. Or let me put it like this because I don't want anyone letting themselves off the hook, myself included, too quickly. Brace yourselves. Guys, we do damage to women when we trivialize their fears, when we brush their concerns away. Guilty as charged. I have done that. We do damage when we look at and buy pornography. We are fueling a market of exploitation that indirectly affects all the women around us, all the women in this room. Look around at them. We do harm to women in the workplace, the women that we work with on a daily basis when we silence their voices, when we ignore them or marginalize them, when we fail to rightly see them as full, whole, complete image bearers of God. That is not has said. Hesed is constantly seeking to defend and shelter and protect and honor and dignify and bless because that's what you deserve. Hesed is in Boaz. He shows us how men can use their power to create places where the vulnerable are given refuge and where people are feared of strain, freed of strain and fear, where women can be recognized for their God-given dignity so they can powerfully contribute to God's story the way that Ruth does. And so to all the guys, I say, can we work hard to do this together, to make that our culture, make that our MO in this church and around Polly's Island for the sake of the kingdom so that we can work tightly together with the women God has called into ministry, just like Boaz and Ruth go on to work tightly together for the sake of the kingdom. Can we do that? So there's a need to offer defense. We've seen that. And we all have a call to be defenders, and so what should we do in response? Let me say two things here in closing, two practical things. Both of them stem from the example of Boaz. Great example he is. We should see and we should act. We should see and we should act. We should see. Is it not a remarkable thing that Boaz, this powerful man, this landowner, this wealthy man, he actually sees Ruth. He notices her. She herself says it in verse 10. Why would you even notice me? Has said 
sees the vulnerable and the unprotected. It's always scanning and searching for those who need defending and shielding. But here's the thing, for us in 21st century America, that's not always as straightforward, certainly not as easy as it would have been in the ancient world, because in the ancient world, rich and poor lived side by side. The rich might have a wall around their house, but they all lived in close proximity. But these days, we've reached levels of wealth and affluence uh, that make that hard, because wealth and affluence can differentiate and separate and segregate. We all know this. And so that means, well, let me just put it this way, America has become very good at building neighborhoods that are constructed to minimize contact with the poor. I live in a neighborhood like that. And so I can get isolated from the vulnerable. I literally don't see them. Nevertheless, the people of God are called to see, to scan and search for the vulnerable. And so what, what might that mean? It might mean that I need to think about how to rearrange my life so that I encounter the refugees and the widows and the orphans and the poor in our midst. There are people in this county, Georgetown County, South Carolina, like Ruth, lots of them, who are subject to immense deprivation. There are people living on a knife's edge, and God is asking, do you see them? Will you act? Will you offer some of your strength? And we all have some strength for the sake of others. A few weeks ago, a senior Catholic leader, that cardinal right there, his name is Cardinal Pierre Pizzaballa, he offered himself in exchange for hostages being held by Hamas. That's a guy who understands that love defends. We must act to defend our vulnerable neighbors. We must serve. Now, to be sure, we have to do that with wisdom and discernment. There are charlatans at every level of society. We all know that. But we must act to, to, to serve and to defend. We've got to give of our time and our talent for the sake of those at risk and in danger. Maybe we have to earmark some hours each week to volunteer. A lot of you already do this. Keep doing that. It matters so much. You help out with Teach My People or Helping Hands or Friendship Place or Carolina Human Reinvestment or the Joy School for the Disabled down the road. You will meet the vulnerable in all those places. And that is a good thing because we meet the face of Jesus in the vulnerable. Or you go to school, and I'm going to say something now for all the teenagers in the room. You go to school. Every day you go to school, there are people around you who are being harmed. Maybe it's by their parents. Maybe it's by virtue of being excluded. Go after those kids. Invite them to eat lunch with you. Invite them to come to youth group on Sunday nights. You know, that? You know what you're doing when you do that? A powerful act of hesed. That's what you're doing. How are you using the power of God has given you. We are the church. And the church stands with and helps the vulnerable in every sense of the word. We stand with the disabled. We stand with immigrants and refugees. We stand with the mentally ill, the unborn. We stand with women, with the psychologically unwell, with people of color experiencing racism, with the sexually exploited, with the elderly, with widows, with the poor, with the homeless, with the powerless. We stand with the vulnerable. Why do we do that? Don't make this a political thing. It's not. We stand with the vulnerable because God does that. He did it, and he is doing it. Jesus Christ is God standing with the poor and powerless, and that's us, all of us in some way, shape, and form. We are the poor and the powerless. If you don't know that about yourself, it's time to wake up. When you have been touched by God's defending and protecting love, when you realize what Jesus Christ has done for you to deal with your eternal vulnerabilities, you know what you'll do? To the extent that that's happened, you will follow his example. I will make bases. We will provide sanctuary. Because boundless love defends. It defends. It defends. It defends. It defends.